Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. We're currently living in a mental health crisis. More and more young people especially are struggling with finding their way out of darkness. And today's conversation may be a little bit difficult for some people to actually listen to because of the subject matter. We are talking about a very, very heavy topic known as suicide and uh, suicidality and what that actually means as, as well as other issues when it comes to mental health, such as depression and and anxiety. But in order to help find our way out of the darkness, we've got to take you into the dark places. But rest assured, we will actually help you find proper solutions in order to uh, get back into a state of being whole and actually being the person that you were designed and created to be. Did you know that suicide is now the leading cause of death among young adults between the ages of 18 to 34? And it is the fourth leading cause of death among the middle-aged. My next guest is Rick Lawrence. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, he's most well-known for his best-selling book, The Jesus-Centered Bible, and he's the author of several other books. He was the executive editor of Group Magazine for 32-plus years, uh, and he's done many, many other incredible things. He co-wrote a book called The Suicide Solution, which is the topic of conversation we dive right into this topic straight away, as you will soon discover. Uh, but this book, The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness, I think every single person that is struggling right now with any kind of mental health issue needs to pick up a copy of this book. It was written not only by uh, Rick Lawrence, by, but also Dr. Daniel Amina, uh, who is part of uh, Daniel Amen's clinics or the Amen clinics, So you know that there is a comprehensive psychological help and very, very unique strategies in this book. We became 
Most of us actually became the story we have decided to live inside of us. When Jesus said, I have come to set captives free, he meant that he came to debug our programming. And we dive into all of that in this conversation. So I won't delay any further for you guys, but if you do struggle with with suicide, this comes as sort of a disclaimer uh, or suicidality um, tendencies like I have for most of my life, then just be be warned that you you may be triggered. uh, But in essence, I hope that you are able to be helped by this conversation nonetheless. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me in the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Rick Lawrence. Oh, Jay, thank you so much for this invitation. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for your grace when it came to rescheduling this conversation. Uh, the day that we I actually emailed you was not a good day and I didn't particularly, I'll be honest, I didn't particularly want to be diving into a heavy topic like suicide on that day. So thank you so much for being uh, kind to me on that front. Uh, oh, you know, I, I totally understand that, Jay, too. And in fact, this book, because it's called The Suicide Solution, uh, one one thing we, uh, my co-author, Dr. Daniel Amina, and I did not expect, or we just didn't foresee it, is when you have a book called The Suicide Solution and you're out in public, like you're at a in a hotel lobby or something like that, you kind of don't want the front of that book to be upright. You kind of want to turn it over. And it's because it's a, I mean, it just the name itself can uh, can feel heavy and like a, a burden. So I, it's not a surprise to me at all that you didn't want to dive into this on, on a day when you were struggling. But but the good news about this book is that it's full of joy and hope. So a heavy thing that's like what Jesus does, he upends ugly things and makes them beautiful. Which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today for sure. I think you got to go into the darkness and then find your way towards the light which is gen- the general consensus for a lot of people. But I think this is a needed book and a needed topic because this is something that I had struggled with for a long part of my life. And, and like I was saying before, the statistics surrounding this are absolutely staggering. Are you able to share, before we sort of, I think we'll just dive right into the deep end, if that's okay with you, Rick. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, are you able to share some of the alarming statistics around that and why that is the case? Yeah, and you can tell me, how these, how what I'm about to say resonates also in your context in Australia. Um, uh, but uh, a lot of what we put in the book is is germane to American culture. Some of it's uh, wider than that for Western culture. Um, but right now, uh, let me just reel off a few things. Um, there's a, an epidemic of depression and emotional distress among especially young people in the United States. A fifth of them are right now wrestling with serious depression. And the, the COVID-19 pandemic just accentuated some of the aspects of this second epidemic. Yeah. So there's been an, huge increases in loneliness, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse disorder, um, domestic violence, child abuse, you name it. It's been magnified over the last two and a half years. 
at the height of the pandemic. So here's here's something that usually staggers people when I say this. The height of the pandemic, a quarter of all 18 to 24-year-olds said they'd seriously considered suicide in the last month. Yeah. A quarter of 18 to 24-year-olds. So you can see the the uh um the results or the 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 consequences of this very serious mental health issues uh, issue that happened during the pandemic, you can still see it with us. If you talk to any young person, you talk to anybody who's a college professor or in college administration, they'll tell you these students they're seeing are different than previous waves of students because they've had a collective PTSD moment in their lives that has accentuated everything. So, um, there, you know, we could go on and on about some of the the serious consequences. Um, let me just list a couple more. Uh, the the one thing that's interesting is that um, if if this trajectory continues, especially with young people, suicide soon will eclipse unintentional injury as the number one killer of teenagers. Suicide will. So in, since the turn of the, the, the turn of the millennium, suicide has increased by about uh, almost by about a third, 33 percent. And it's decreased our overall life expectancy. You've probably seen this in the news yeah. that over the last two years, the global life expectancy is going down, not up. Um, that hasn't happened in, um, in our in the last century. So um, what what is that fed by? Well, uh, some of it is drug overdose, some of his alcohol-related diseases, but suicide is a primary driver of that decrease in life expectancy. So, so the bottom line is that everyone has a connection to this in one way or another, but people have a hard time talking about it for obvious reasons. You already said, Jay, that you know, this is a tough thing to move into uh, emotionally and otherwise. So uh, people don't often drag it into the light, but um, there's a, a Jim Collins who wrote Good to Great, which is the mm. best-selling business book of all time. Yeah. He embedded something at the center of his book called the Stockdale Paradox, which was referencing Jim Stockdale. He was the highest-ranking American military officer imprisoned during the Vietnam War. And he was imprisoned for eight years in a tiny cell where he couldn't stand up. He was tortured more than two dozen times. Um he should not have survived this incredibly uh, difficult experience, but he did. When many others didn't survive, he did. So after he got out, of course, people were interested to know how he survived this horrific experience. And essentially what he said, Jim Collins turned into what he calls the Stockdale paradox. And what Stockdale said was um, the optimists who were incarcerated in the Hanoi Hilton with him the optimists died early. People had said, hey, we'll probably get out by Easter or Christmas. They did not make it. The, the way to, to persevere in, under a difficult, challenging situation is to be brutally honest about the actual reality you're living in while, while uh, maintaining your persevering hope at the same time. Those two things overlapping. And most people don't live in that tension uh, but Stockdale said, if you live in that tension, you'll survive. You have to be honest and real about your current situation without giving up your persevering hope at the same time. And I think that's the moment we're in. 
we need to embrace our brutal reality while hanging on to what's what is real hope. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on with that. I mean, I, I try and say that I'm an eternal optimist while I'm also a pessimist at the same time because I like being grounded in reality. Yep. Because I think that is important. Because if you have your heads head above the clouds all the time, you you're gonna fall short a lot of the, a lot of the time too. You're gonna feel miserable. Um, is what I've discovered in life. And I think this this pandemic that is that has been going on, especially amongst young people, that was only heightened because of the pandemic of COVID-19. It was increasing because of other issues that were going on in society at the time as well. And this yes. other issue of loneliness. And um I guess my question to you is how do we why in particular is this rate of mental health, especially among young people, why is that going on? Like, what are the main reasons for this? Is it like, are we able to to, to share some? Yeah. So, um, so we all know that this is true experientially. Teenagers are hardwired relationally. We all are. Obviously, we're creating the image of God, who's a triune God. That means we're fundamentally relational people. Teenagers put that on steroids. They, they, their whole identity is tied to who, who they're with. And uh, during the pandemic, they could not be with their, their, their friends um, in, in a face-to-face way, in an in-person way. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so all of their relationships were mitigated by Zoom or by uh, technology of some kind. And it's just, we all know this, it's just not the same. So what that led to was wholesale isolation among teenagers. Now it's it's isolation is is one of the worst forms of punishment you can mete out upon a human being because we're wired to be relational. Isolation can literally kill you. People who are put in isolated confinement can die from isolation. <laughs> so so here you have a whole swath of young people um uh, in their nuclear developmental stage, and they are without the kind of in-person connections that they des- their souls desperately need in order to develop their identity properly. And what it did also was, uh, this is a major theme and thread through our book, um, it, it sort of nuclearized the destructive narratives that were existent in, the, in teenagers, but in in all persons. So all of us have planted seeds of what Daniel and I call in the book, destructive narratives. Um, They are uh, narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves to help us make sense of our chaotic, messy, and damaged world. And uh, some of those narratives are full of truth. But many of our narratives are 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 uh, they come from the dark places in our soul. They're stories we tell. Like for instance, uh, um, I was at a conference a few years ago, and the leader. It was a men's conference, and the leader asked the men to write down a lie they believe about themselves on a blank sheet of paper. They collected them and then and then. Uh, it took in what was said on those papers overnight. And then the next morning they told all the men what, what collectively they had said. And by far 
about 90% of the men put on their paper, I'm not enough. Mm -hmm. Some version of I'm not enough. So that is a destructive narrative. And what's interesting is how is it possible that nine out of 10 Christian men have a belief in them? They know it's a lie, but it's still existent in them that they are not enough. And I, I think a simple answer to that is because that's a we know that there is a father of lies. His whole personality is based on deception. And when he finds a lie or deception that is leveraging and works, he goes with it. And for men, that lie that works is I'm not enough. So if you invest yourself too much in that destructive narrative, it can lead toward a slide of depression and suicidality in the end. Destructive narratives are dangerous. So a theme in the book is um, how do you surface your destructive narratives? And what is how does Jesus, what, what do we see in the patterns of how Jesus related to people? What do we see him doing with people's destructive narratives? How does he free them from the captivity of those destructive narratives? That's part of the exploration of the book. I love that. And while you were actually talking and, and describing that event and um, sharing that, I was turning to a page in my book that I wrote about. So there's a chapter called um, uh, Suffering in Perfect Silence. And there's a particular, like on page 72 to 73, uh, there's a sub chapter or subsection called The Ugly Lies People Believe. And I, I tended to focus more on the lies that men believe the most. And number one that I wrote down is I'm not worth anything. Hmm. And then number two is I won't ever be good enough. And then number three is I'll never find or be loved. So hmm. there is this a special need for men to feel loved by other people, that connection. And I feel like today it's missing. And then secondly, what's happening, I've noticed, and I, I think you you can, you might be able to speak on this, Rick, if you've noticed the same thing, is, is this attack on masculinity, attack on being a man. Mm -hmm. They don't know what it means to be a man. And so if they don't know what it, be, it means to be a man, then who are they? What's their identity? Yeah. yeah. And then it just trickles down, right? Yeah. So you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about uh, what it means to come sideways at things. Um, so shrewdness, I wrote a book called Shrewd. It's it's all focused on the parable of the shrewd manager. I wrote this about 15 years ago. And um, it's about innocent shrewdness. That's what Jesus was trying to help his disciples learn is innocent shrewdness. And shrewdness is leverage, and it always comes from the side. It doesn't come from the front. So there's you can you can use shrewdness for evil, or you can use shrewdness for great good. Yeah. If you use it for evil, you're uh, this is this is a, a perfect way to understand the destructive intent of the enemy of God. The enemy of God never comes frontally. No, he's learned through experience. If if you if if suddenly Jay you are attacked physically in your body with some medical condition, um, you're more likely to deepen your faith in the midst of that than to lose your faith yeah. because it's a frontal attack on your well-being. But if the attack comes from the side at your identity, could you read those three uh, three top responses again that you you just 
covered in your in the pages of your book. Yeah, because if you if you come from the side, those things that you just read are coming from the side. Did you, could you just read them again? So number one is I'm not worth anything. Number two is I won't ever be good enough. Number three is I'll never find or be loved. So if you fully, as a man, if you fully embrace those three things as narratives that make sense to you, that help to describe the circumstances of your life and how people react to you, if you fully embrace those, it will destroy your identity. Yep. And who has a vested interest in destroying our identity? The enemy of God doesn't care about our body. He knows we're eternal beings. He doesn't care. He cares about our soul. He cares about destroying what is permanent in yeah. us. So that's why he uses, and that's why those three things you read are so universal. Um, it means that simply we have, a, a, the enemy of God is lazy. When he finds something that works, he just uses it. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus though, is shrewder than that shrewd one. And he wants us to um, uh, learn how to be equally shrewd. There's actually a in the book, in the Suicide Solution, um, there is a transitionary chapter. The first part of the first third of the book is about um, our, our, our what we call our hardware and software, which are the two things that come together to bring us um, wholeness and health. That's our psychology and our biology. So we talk a good deal about um, psychology and biology in the first third of the book. The last two thirds are all uh, uh, individual uh, focused chapters on a menu of possibilities out of the darkness modeled by Jesus. But the first chapter in that in that section is all it's called escaping through the side door. Mm. And it means that that um, we need sideways leverage to deal with our destructive narratives because that's where they came from in the first place. They came from the side. So all of the things that Daniel and I lay out in the in the last two thirds of the book are all sideways approaches to bringing health, wholeness, light, um, and redemption into our dark story. I want to get to that in just a moment, and then also speaking more and and um, yeah, going off what you just said, uh, the devil is deceitful and desperately wicked. Like he, he seeks who he wants to devour all the time. That's what God says in his word. And he knows what will break us if we allow it to break us. And those, those lies, those three lies, those are the three main ones that people believe, especially men. But there's like so many others that he'll throw at us from the side. And sometimes there'll be when we least expect them. And if we're not armoring ourselves every single day, as the Bible tells us to, then we can't resist them. They will attack right. us. And then I also talk about in the book, there's a difference between a thought versus a belief. A thought, we have them every single day. We have thousands upon thousands of thoughts. The more you think about something, then it's more likely it's going to become a belief. It's going to be ingrained within your mind and therefore your whole being most people those three lies they they think about it too much it becomes a belief it becomes ingrained like you were talking about in their identity and so then it becomes a lot harder for it to shift change it around but it's not impossible 
So I guess my question to you is speaking about men in particular. So between the ages of, and I even wrote this in my book too, between the ages of 18 to I think I was um, 20 something, you're still trying to figure out who you are, life, purpose, identity, the whole thing. Is it mainly just men or did you find that there are some women there too? As far as destructive narratives? Destructive narratives, oh, that oh, this yeah. plagues more men than women or is it? No, it's it's fine? universal. Um, women have their own set of destructive narratives. They're not that dissimilar from what we just said, but there there is a different spin on them. So everyone has destructive narratives. It's part of our brokenness. So if we were fully whole and never born into brokenness in the first place, we wouldn't have destructive narratives. Those destructive, those, those narratives are nurtured and cultivated by the enemy of God. Because if his intention is to kill, steal, and destroy, which is what you just said, he's he's thinking, what is the most efficient way to do that? The most efficient way to do it is to nuclearize those broken narratives that we that so in the book we have a uh, a section that goes over 18 personal schemas that that are psychologically uh isolated schemas that we embrace in life um there's all kinds of examples of them there are things like um I'll always be poor mm. for instance that there, there are things that are associated with uh, sort of a poverty of spirit, uh, an expectation of poverty in your life. That's a schema. Um, so there's 18 of those that are isolated in the book that uh, that we encourage people as they're reading the book, again, back to be brutally honest, as you read those schemas, which ones do you identify with? Most people, men and women, identify with more than half of them. Um, when you read them, you know, <laughs> when, when you see it in written word, it's hard to embrace it. But it, there's also a sense when you read these schemas that I'm not alone. Wow, I thought this was just me. Yeah. But many, many people must must have had the uh, ha embraced these what we call maladopt maladoptive interior narratives. So let me just read off a few. I, I bet if I just read them. Um, people listening right now will resonate and say, oh, really? <laughs> so emotional deprivation is one of the schemas. Basically, that your expectation or desire for normal emotional support will never be met by others. Uh, it's like the third one that you mentioned from your book, I'll never feel cared for. That's a schema of emotional deprivation. Yeah. Abandonment is a very widespread schema. Mistrust defectiveness or shame. So not that I did something bad, but I am bad. That's a schema of defectiveness or shame. Failure, incompetence or depend uh, slash dependence, vulnerability to harm or illness, meaning uh, a, a sort of an exaggerated fear that some catastrophic thing is going to happen at any point in time. Um, enmeshment, subjugation, I could go on and on. Just listing these few things, you can start to see, oh, I do have a relationship with that. Um, so we all have these operating in us, but they're not all weaponized. So when a person is sliding into depression and suicidality, 
these schemas become weaponized in them. They become deadly in them. And then the, uh, what we talk about in the book is the, the approach that we take is, is both a hardware and software approach. There's biological things you can do with your life to build a bulwark against these destructive narratives, um, bringing you, sliding you down this slope. So there's biological things you can do. And often in the Christian world, we poo-poo those. You know, we think, um, yeah, if I broke my leg, I, of course I'd go to a doctor. But if I'm struggling with depression, I'm embarrassed to go to a counselor. Yeah. I should have more faith in that. We don't say as Christians, my leg is broken. I should have more faith and it will be, and, and it never would have been broken in the first place. Yeah. We don't say that. We go see the doctor and who helps us fix our leg. But there are, uh, in the faith community, we have an aversion to that relative to a broken soul. Um, but there are biological uh, helps that trained professionals can help us with. And then on the other side of that, the software side um, is designed to help our soul. What are some bulwarks that we can uh, build up in our own soul that will keep us from those schemas in us becoming weaponized and driving us into the darkness? How much of it is actually our biology versus just our software? So it's the same kind of question you might ask about a computer. So how much is the computer's functioning really about the hardware versus the software? The yeah. answer is it, 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 it requires both no matter what. And if you get a bug in your hardware, it can slow down the operation of your computer or even destroy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It. If you get a bug in your software, it can do the same thing. So we say in the book, um, you know, Jesus quotes Isaiah when he tells everyone for the first time publicly what his mission is in the world. He quotes Isaiah. Central to what, is, what he's quoting is, I came to set captives free. Yeah. And then he sets about for three years doing it. And then through, through his spirit, he's doing it right now in our lives. His everyday thought, every moment thought, in fact, about us right now is what greater level of freedom can I bring to Jay? What greater level of freedom can I bring to Rick today? Um, because we are captive to um, these things that intend to destroy us. So, so when we talk about <clears throat> hardware and software, the software side of this is the is the fascinating upending ways that Jesus, while he was, uh, so a good way to see this is whenever you see him healing someone, he's doing something to their hardware 
giving them sight to the blind, uh, healing them of leprosy. These are biological things, but he's also doing something in their software. So a good example is the woman who, um, so Jesus is, is hurrying on his way to try to save the daughter of Jairus, a Jewish leader who is near death. He's the, the, the father is desperate. Um, he wants Jesus to come as fast as he can. A girl's life is on the line and he's crossing a public square and a woman sneaks up behind him and touches the hem of his garment. And instead of hurrying on his way, as his disciples and everyone expects him to, he stops. Mm. He's risking the little girl's life by stopping. But he stops and says, who touched me? And he won't leave until the woman finally says, comes forward and says, it's me. Why is Jesus doing this? He's She's already experienced her biological healing. She's had an issue of blood for most of her life. She's spent her life savings trying to cure it. She's isolated and ostracized from society because of this condition. Mm-hmm. And she's healed. Why not let her just be healed and go on her own way? Because what Jesus does is he brings her into the public square and by doing that, proclaims to the entire community, this woman is now healed. She's no longer should be isolated or ostracized for community. She's whole now. That's the other healing she needs after spending a lifetime in isolation. So he's, like we talked about before, he's shrewd, innocently shrewd. He is healing her biology while he's also very much focused on her on her on her uh, psychology, her software, he wants her to be whole in both ways, and they both work together. Yeah. Have you ever struggled with mental health issues before, Rick? Yes. <laughs> uh, in fact, I have on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. I don't know if in Australia. You have seen the children's show Phineas and Ferb. Does that? Yes. Yeah, I, I I binge watched it. Believe it or not. <laughs> okay. So uh, my my youngest daughter and I love that show, and um, I used to watch it with her. And I went through a, a pretty dark time where I was struggling. And like like you do, you can probably resonate with this, especially when you're entering down the downward slope into that dark time. You don't really share it with very many people. You say to yourself, I'll pull out of this. It's just a, I mean, I'm having a hard day or or I'm having a hard week or a hard month, but you don't overshare it because you don't want to alarm anyone in your life. I'm good. It's going to be okay. I'll pull myself out of this. Well, I went through one of those seasons where I got to a place where I, I had sort of hidden it from the closest people in my life, but I was more and more not able to pull out of it. And so, um, uh, my daughters and my my whole family and my friends then started to know I'm struggling because I started to share with them. And shortly after that, I uh, started getting in my mailbox little brown boxes that had just my name on them, no return address. They weren't mailed. Somebody put them in my mailbox. I got the first one. I opened it. It had a little character from Phineas and Ferb in it. And it had a laminated scripture passage um, that was, I could tell immediately was designed to enter into my darkness. And so I I got this and I started asking my family and others, who could have done this? And I first asked my family, did you guys do this? And it was obvious they hadn't. 
uh, as I talked to them. So then it became a family thing. We were all wondering who, who might have done this. This continued for eight weeks, once a week, new box in my mailbox. Finally, the end one said, um, I bet you haven't guessed who's been doing this yet. Um, in 24 hours, you'll never know. You either guess in the next 24 hours or we'll never reveal ourselves. So then I became desperate and started guessing even more. And I was sitting with my daughter in my office one day and I, I just had this hunch. I said, Emma, you're not. Now she was, she was uh, in sixth grade, seventh grade at the time. I said, Emma, you're not in any way involved in this, are you? And she paused for a second. And I looked at her face and I thought, oh my gosh. So what had happened is that I discovered my two daughters had cooked up this scheme to, to encourage me in the midst of my darkness by putting a Phineas and Ferb character there in a scripture passage. The thing I never told anyone was all of those eight weeks, somebody going to all this great effort to help me didn't move the needle in my life. It had no impact on me. But when I found out who had done it, it, it healed me. It changed everything. And it taught me that it's, it's not so much what someone is doing for you. It is the who behind it that is doing this. So it was a relational healing. It was the fact that my daughters could see me this way. And they're in, they, they concocted this mysterious plan to, to, to try to help me. It wasn't that that the things that they did helped me. It was who did it. So, so yeah. It what what that does then is also think about it. It changed my narrative from I'm isolated. Nobody sees me. Nobody really knows what's happening. Nobody would love me if they really saw me in this darkness. And then I had this accentuated experience of two people who did see it all and loved me deeply. They reached into that darkness and grabbed me. What's that saying? People don't know. People don't care how much you know until they know how yeah. much you care. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's what I was thinking about. And that's a beautiful story. The fact that your, your own family members did it for you. But yeah, I have, I have their letter framed in a, in a box frame with all of the characters that they sent in those boxes standing up in the bottom of it. So I think, I think everyone needs someone like your daughters in their life <laughs> that actually cares for them. And that's what I like when we are going through a difficult time in our life, it's so easy to say, Oh, you'll be right. In Australia, there's that she'll be right attitude. But I encourage people more and more today, if you're a Christian or even not, go and seek someone you love and trust. And just talk to them. Just open up because you never know what's going to come out of that. Could I, could I say also, you, you said everyone needs someone who, who cares uh, deeply for them. The, the way I frame that, the way uh, Daniel and I talk about in the book is um, that. Uh, so our life of intimate relationship with God is fueled by what I call pain, ridiculous attention to Jesus. Yeah. So it's not just casual attention to him. It's ridiculous attention to him, paying attention to his details because there's beauty in the details. And we mostly skim over the beautiful details of Jesus. But it also has a horizontal component 
paying ridiculous attention to others. Most of us have never experienced someone paying ridiculous attention to, to us, not for the purpose of destroying us or critiquing us, but for unearthing the beauty that is there. We just don't experience people doing that. If you become a person who pays ridiculous attention to others for the purpose of surfacing their beauty, you will um, light their path out of darkness into the light and out of captivity into freedom if you if you do that in their lives. But it means that you have to see yourself as a person who pays ridiculous attention to people. You don't let little cues that they they give off. Like you at the very start, Jay, I'm glad we talked about this when we were recording, but at the very start, you said, I I went through a period of time in my life um, when I, you know, I didn't want to record a podcast about suicide. So in I'd say in 90% of our conversations, if you were not talking to be recorded on a podcast, people might blow past that. Only 10% of the people would say, Jay, would you mind me asking what was going on in your life that day or that that week? That's paying ridiculous attention to someone. It's not letting details go by. It's stopping and exploring what those are. And I've been doing this my whole life, my whole adult life. And most people say, oh, I'm afraid that people think I'm prying or going too deep or I'm asking, you know, you even asked, is it all right if I ask you any question I want to? Um, it's because we're we're concerned that we'll overstep our boundaries. Um, but my experience is um, in doing this with people, I have never had a person not open up to me when I pursued them with genuine care mm. in the details of their life. Like saying, I just heard you say this. Do you mind if I asked you what's going on in your life with that? People don't say, no, I'd rather not. Yeah. They always say they they give some version of the truth. And the longer you stay interested paying and paying attention, the deeper they'll go. It's that vulnerability factor, I think. Yes. Yeah. When they see that you're opening up, it gives them permission to do the same. Or when they even deeper, when they say that you're legitimately interested. Yeah. When they can see that. Yep. When they sense you're legitimately interested and you're not going to give up, then they open up. Yeah. Mm. That, that's an important distinction, I think, because you can have those fake people that just say it, the sake of saying it, and then you'll have those genuine people that will say it, mean it with all their heart, and they'll actually listen to you. And Rick, you know, I, I try, I fall short of this all the time because I'm human. But I've spoken with so many people on this show and I want, the reason why I didn't want to, I wasn't in the right frame of mind was I got some very harsh news and it was tough to process that news and actually having that go on in my life and then show up. I felt like I couldn't show up in the the authentic way that I needed to show up and talk to you about this issue in society yeah and for me that was um it was a stark reminder like every single day because doing a podcast is not easy (laughs) let's just say that like every single time you are showing up 
as your most vulnerable self if you choose to do that. Yep. Because you, if people see like you're making a mistake, then you, you there's no like cutting it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Please, I don't cut it out. So the same with really, really caring about your guest and caring about people in your life. Same yeah. thing. How you show up here or how I show up here is the same how I show up with my friends and family. There's no gray areas for me, Rick, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. And it makes me, it reminds me that our choices, you can loosely group our choices in our life um, between two kind of forks in the road. One is I'm going to take a step further into the cave. Yep. Or I'm the other is I'm going to step take a step further toward the light. Um, and always, so what I how I process what you did is instead of uh, descending into to being uh, a performer or a poser who sets aside the reality of their soul, you decided to honor your soul and said, I, I'm not going to show up inauthentic to this space. That's a step toward the light. There's a, a most people know the basic story of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's a pivotal moment in that story where Aragorn, who is a who is the, the true king, but he's been avoiding stepping into that uh, that that role or that calling his whole life. And he's confronted by an older man who says, the world needs you to step into who you are. There are people that are going to die if you don't. Um, so that finally motivates him to step into himself. And he knows he has to do something hard and he has to do it alone. So he, he sets off on a trip to go into... <laughs> a dark cave in a, in a deadly, scary mountain. It's, it's uh there's a portal into the interior of this mountain where a whole army of ghosts live. And he's intending to go into that place and recruit these ghosts to fight on behalf of good. And his two buddies go with him. They fight, they see where he's going and they join him and they get to the opening of this dark cave. And it says, all who enter here will die. That's the that's the frame on top of the opening of the cave. And Aragorn looks at it and says, I'm not afraid to die. And he enters the cave and then his buddies reluctantly follow him. And I think that's a metaphoric picture of how God sees us. He knows there's people in caves who are in desperate straits. They are tremendously needy. And he needs people who will say, I'm not afraid of that cave. I can go into that darkness, but he doesn't just send anyone into the, those dark caves. He sends people who've been there before. He sends people who've been in that dark cave and they, they have emerged with a kind of strength and courage that allows them to return for the sake of others. So these ugly, terrible, broken things that have happened in our life, the beauty he brings out of those is now I see you, my son, able to go into the very place I need someone to go into who can say in their soul, I'm not afraid of that kind of death. And they can go in and bring capt captives into the light. Yeah. So that's just another way of saying what we were saying before, um, like uh, uh, paying ridiculous attention to people is also having a heart for going into their dark caves. And not being afraid to go there. Um, 
for the sake of their freedom. Yeah. Once again, that is really, really powerful. And I think a lot of people that are fans of the Lord of the Rings analogy and bringing <laughs> it back to the spiritual side of things is great. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. To sort of round out this conversation, Rick, I wanted to ask you two final questions. The yeah, this one, I guess I want to bring people towards the light. What are some ways we can help people step towards finding the way out of the darkness and actually into the light? Yeah, let me just give you a few um some we call it a menu of possibilities. There uh in that last two-thirds of the book that I told you about, um, that we we call these um these individual chapters just a menu of possibilities for they're not uh to-do lists. That I guess that's what I'm trying to get across. So often we uh we uh, do exactly what Jesus said not to do that the Pharisees did all the time, which is tie up heavy burdens on people's backs yeah. and you're not even willing to lift a finger to help them. So these these ideas that are in the back two thirds of our book are not uh, a to do list of burdens, uh, especially for people who already feel weakened by their struggle against darkness. So these are just a menu of possibilities. And we say um, in the preface to it, some of these things are going to resonate with you. You're going to read them and say, I can do that. So do those things. And some things you're going to read and you say, oh, that feels too hard or that's going to take a lot of work, then don't do it. Don't worry about those things. Just do the things that resonate with you. So let me give you some examples. Uh, um, that, and these are all, again, sideways examples. It's important to keep that in mind. So in Japan right now, um, there's a national passion for something called forest bathing. Hmm. Yeah, forest bathing. <laughs> and it means that Many, many Japanese people have made it a habit in their lives to get out of the city and into creation. And they call it like taking a bath in, in creation. So it's helpful. It brings psychological and physical helps, but it's not just metaphorical. There are reasons why God has created his created world designed to heal us. Yep. So the longer we spend in his creation, the more healing we experience or, or uh, wellness we experience. So one example of that that changed a habit in my life was I learned that trees let off uh, uh, a oil called phytocytes. They, 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 it's like almost like a gas that they emit into the air. These phytocytes are designed to keep insects from destroying them but but the the impact they have on human beings is they impact our emotional wellness these mm -hmm. phytocytes so when we are walking through a forested area we are drinking in phytocytes from the trees and it makes us feel elevated in our soul Be, and that is not a psychological thing it's a biological thing it's like we're being bathed in something that you know, improves our mood I guess is another way of saying it. Um, so uh, if you develop a habit pattern of spending more time in creation, you're taking advantage of something God has embedded in his created world that helps us emotionally. 
Um, so the the change that that brought about in my life is um, I I'm not a I, I wouldn't call myself a runner, but I try to run once a week in addition to the other fitness things I do. And I used to run in our neighborhood. We have a two mile loop in our neighborhood that I would run on the street. When I started reading this, I thought, what if I ran on the trail that's just outside our neighborhood that goes through the forested area? So I immediately, the first week I started doing this, I realized um, when I used to run in our neighborhood, the two mile loop, I would usually have to stop once or twice, walk a little bit and then finish my run. I could run two miles in the forest without stopping. And it was more challenging to run there because there was more hills. And I thought, how can that be possible? I think it's because I felt emotionally uh, a greater degree of emotional well-being when I was running through the forest. That gave me greater stamina. If you're a runner, you know half of your stamina or more than that comes from just your thought processes inside and your emotional state that you're in. So I found that I could run farther and faster when I was running in a forested trail. And it's because of what I was experiencing biologically in a forest instead of on a paved street. So so that's an example. And we start off that chapter. It's called Immersing Yourself in the Natural World. We start off looking at um, how how much Jesus used um, metaphors and parables from the created world. Consider the lilies. Consider the sparrows. He's really inviting us to to immerse ourselves in the natural created world when he tells these kinds of parables and stories. So he's inviting us to do something that will affect our wellness from the side. Uh, There's a whole chapter uh, in that whole menu of possibilities called changing our interior narrative. And we, uh, we spoke about this at the start of the podcast quite a bit. They're just strategies for how to go after your destructive narrative. So one of the examples we give in that chapter is I have a friend who was really wrestling with his destructive narratives. So um, he found um, all of the uh, promises of Jesus he could find in scripture. He recorded them on, on his phone. And then he went to bed listening to his own voice tell him the promises of Jesus. That's how he went to sleep every night. Over the course of time, it eradicated many of his destructive narratives because he was going to sleep listening to the truth every single night. So that was his strategy. May not work for everyone, but that's an example of how to confront your destructive narratives. The other, another easy one to, to, to say is to surface it and share it. Surface it and share it. Get your destructive narratives out of the dark cave into the light. Admit them to someone, especially, uh, you know, this maybe goes without saying, but admit them to people who care about you. They can't fix it for you, but they can be mirrors for you in your life. They can say, that's distorted. <clears throat> Here's the true reflection of you. We, we form our identity by looking outside of ourselves at the reflections around us. Your friends can't reflect back the truth about you unless you tell them the untruths that you see yourself in. That's then an invitation for them to reflect back the truth. All wonderful strategies. 
And me in particular, I love the running thing. <laughs> I, am, I am a runner. So before doing this conversation, I went for my, my daily run. And I feel a lot better mentally, physically, emotionally, and even spiritually when I go for a run, when I'm pounding the pavement and I'm in nature. It yeah. Really can I, I say something work. quick uh, as an addendum yeah. about that, Jay? Uh, one of our chapters is called Engaging the Body. And, and so it starts off with an explore, exploration of um, Jesus's physicality. So we think of him as a carpenter, but he was actually a stonemason and he worked for his father's stonemasonry business. The building material that they used at that time in his area of the world was stone, not, not wood. And so he worked for his father's business. He worked in one of the most physically demanding jobs you can have his whole life until he was 30 years old. Um, most historians and experts say if you calculate the the distance that Jesus, just based on the trip, the 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 accounts we know of of where he walked to, and then what an average person at that time in history would have walked to, Jesus likely walked the circumference of the earth by the time he went to the cross. Mm. So he was a very physical person. And he was physical because that's the, a part of our hardware that needs to be supported biologically. It's not just that I'll keep fit or I'll lose weight. It's good for our soul to be physically active. He tells us to actually look after our body, to take good care of it, to look after our mind, to look after our spirit, all these things. And I think that Jesus was really, really fit. Is a perfect example. Be more like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we often we often translate that as yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I need to be more fit. I need to eat better. I, yeah, I've heard it all before. The heart of what Jesus is saying, though, is if you'll do this, you will build up a bulwark against an enemy who's trying to destroy you. Yeah. So wake up, wake up. You are under assault, and your your physical fitness will help you in your soul and your body to beat back those assaults. It really does work because I notice any day that I somehow miss my run or miss my walk or miss my workout, I feel it. I don't feel as good. I've got to do that movement. So yep. totally agree with you on all those areas, Rick. My final question for you, I wanted to ask, where do you want people to actually get a copy of this book? Oh, that's a great question. It's easy. You can find it easily on Amazon. So it's called The Suicide Solution. Just look on Amazon for it. Um, you can also visit my website if you like. It's ricklawrence.com. Pretty easy to remember, ricklawrence.com. The book's on Amazon. You can, uh, you can get it there today. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. I'm glad that we had this conversation. I hope it really does help people find their way out of the darkness and into the light. But thank you so much for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you, Jay. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.